0: Well, as you've probably picked up by now, there's a particular tone about our time this morning, which is heavy. And uh, that may actually be quite uncomfortable for some of us. Uh, It isn't the dominant tone of our time together every week, but this is where we see the wisdom of following God's agenda, not just what we pick and choose as we work our way through the Bible. Uh, Heaviness, darkness is a feature of the book of Job. And so one of the many reasons to love the Bible, unlike any other word distinct from all other religions and texts, the Bible makes sense of the world in which we live. And it connects to our experience of life in it, including our emotions. Every possible heart condition is reflected in this book. Including that of the brokenhearted. That's Job. As we are finding, we kicked off last week and the prologue introduces us to Job, who is a blameless man, upright, he fears God and shunned evil, a righteous man. A man who had it all large family, successful business and social status. But the prologue takes us behind the heavenly curtain as it's pictured and raises the question, well, does Job love God for nothing? A little bit like, does a kid like Santa just for who he is? Or rather it's for the stuff that he can get from them. And so God allows this accusation to be tested and Job's world comes crashing down on him. He loses everything. He loses all of his kids. They all die. His business goes up in flames. His social status goes down. And do you remember how he responds? Chapter 1, verse 20. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Wow. Last week we marveled at Job's response and asked ourselves the question, could we say that when faced with losing everything? Or at least, do we long to be able to say that and mean that? And I trust and take it that many of us are saying, yes, by the grace of God, I long to be able to say that. Though secretly, we might wonder, does Job live on another spiritual level? Is he a person of faith that, I'm not even close, I'm not even sure that I'll be able to get there. In fact, does his answer seem too neat? Um, Theologically precise, yes, but at odds with my experience of living in the world. Well, then comes chapter 3. Some of the rawest writing in the Bible. In fact, there's going to be 35 more chapters in which Job bears his soul. Now that doesn't mean that his response in chapter 1 and 2 is untrue or that he didn't mean it. Not at all. But it does open up for us the fullness of relationship with God and the place of righteous sorrow in it. That's the big thing for us this morning. The fullness of life with God. Which includes honest lament. Much ink in our Bibles is given over to what is called lament. What is lament? Let me put it this way. It is the unedited cry of a broken heart. Lament is the unedited cry of of a broken heart. You know what I mean by unedited? You know, you, you get the email or the text from someone uh, who's accusing you of doing something or, or being something. You're like, whoa, outraged. How dare they say that? And kind of out of the overflow of the heart, the thumbs start thumping this response. Like, and, and hopefully you kind of catch yourself and you don't hit send and maybe walk away for some time, and you come back and you hopefully edit it, uh, maybe into some nice (laughs) passive-aggressive kind of response, but but you edit out all that white-hot rough stuff, and off it goes. Now, maturity means there's something appropriate about that, not the passive-aggressive thing, but maturity means we don't just fly off like a child would. But that doesn't mean... That a mature relationship with God does not have a place for white hot lament. The Bible holds out people of faith who direct this lament to a holy God, not just the boss, to a holy God. And so, lament is indeed part of a healthy relationship with Him. And so whilst this morning may feel like a little bit of a downer for us, I trust that it will be a real help to us, particularly for the broken-hearted among us now, but also in preparation for all of us as broken hearts await. This is key to our spiritual maturity. So here's the plan. I'm going to take us through Chapter 3 quite quickly and then consider three things that we do with it. So make sure you've got your Bible open there, Job chapter 3. It's a chapter that falls into two halves of curse and lament. Chapter 3, verse 1, having sat in the silence for seven days, after this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Verse 3, even his conception. Now these verses, as he goes on, that they trade on the Genesis creation account. Do you remember all the way back at the start of the Bible where God speaks light into the darkness? Where he brings form and order out of chaos. It's the creation account. Job here wishes for uncreation, for a reversal. Verse 4, that of his birthday that it might turn to darkness. Verse 5, that gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. Verse 8, May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Now Leviathan is an intriguing uh, figure in the Bible for us, it only pops up a few times. It's, it's an enigmatic creature that pops up in the Old Testament and it functions as a mythical sea monster. Uh, it's going to pop up in different forms, chapter 41 kind of pictured like a crocodile, but basically represents chaos that can't be tamed and so as Job speaks this way he he longs for a do-over that as creation comes about he might be left out of it. Now he's broken seven days of silence by cursing the day of his birth and it's a pointless curse of course it it can't affect anything that's in the past But remember what the prologue has thrown up for us. It's the question, will Job curse God if he loses everything? That's what the coming chapters will unfold. Will will, will Job curse God if he loses everything? Now, spoiler alert, the answer will be no. And Job is actually held up by God and honored by God. But gee, he comes within a hair of cursing God. See, cursing the day of his birth, his conception, is so close to cursing God. Because of course in the Hebrew mind, it is God who brings about life in the womb. Psalm 139, you God, nip me together in my mother's womb. All my days are ordained in your book before one comes to be. So we need to keep remembering that we're reading of an upright, blameless man who feared God, shunned evil, will be honoured by God at the end. And yet, in his deepest darkness, he comes so close to the, to the edges of his relationship with God, of being done with God, which is significant for us to note in our walk with him. There's the first half as he curses his birth. The second is a, is a shift in verse 11, where he shifts from cursing his birth to lamenting his life. And again, there is a trigger warning here. This content is particularly painful for some of us who have lost children in early stages. Uh, there's, there's no whitewashing this. It's, it's tough stuff. Verse 11, Why did I not perish at birth? And die as I came from the womb. Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? He goes, alright, if, if my conception couldn't be helped, then why couldn't it have been short-lived? Job complains that he didn't quickly go to the place of the dead. Because verse 17, there the wicked cease from turmoil and there the weary at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease, they no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there and the slaves are freed from their owners. Job imagines that even the power dynamics that exist on earth between the the slave and the captor, all of that disappears in the place of of the dead where there is relative peace. Now it is important for us to know that Job is a particularly early book in the Old Testament but even the Old Testament itself doesn't give us a full picture of the afterlife as the New Testament does. The realities of heaven and hell. And so there, there is much more to come but it's significant that Job just longs for death. Verse 20, there's another shift. Alright, if my conception and birth can't be undone... And if I didn't quickly go to the grave, then why can't I find death now? Verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. We might actually wonder whether Job is on the verge of suicide here. And yet, verse 23, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Do you remember the prologue last week, Hedged, features in the prologue, where it is said of Job that God has put a hedge around Job to keep all suffering out and prosperity in. That's the only reason he loves God, is the accusation. Here, Job complains that it's been reversed, that God has put a hedge around him but now to keep prosperity out and only suffering in. But what is significant is that Job recognises it is God's doing, that it is God who gives life and shapes it. Whether it contains good or bad, Job may hate his life but he knows that it's not his to take It is God who gives life to a man. An important word to us in our darkness. Then comes the end of the chapter with some of the rawest poetry in the Bible. Verse 24. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. There's nothing good coming from outside of Job. He feeds on his own misery. It's what keeps him alive. Verse 25, what I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Do you know that place? i put it to you again that the Bible reflects every possible heart condition, including that of the brokenhearted. So there's the chapter. It is heavy. It is dark. What what do we do with it? Well, let me give you three things where I'll use the metaphor of tears to represent our lament. All the anger and confusion and our deepest hurts and doubts. Metaphor of tears. So firstly, what do we do with this? Number one, Own your tears. Own your tears. As followers of Jesus, we come to the book of Job and we can wonder whether lament is even a Christian thing. And there's something beautiful about that because it portrays our gospel reflex, our gospel reflex of hope of trust in God, that he is good, that he is in control, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. There's something wonderful and beautiful that we need to cling to there. But it it can lead some Christians to embrace a flavour of Christian life, indeed whole churches to embrace a flavour, which means they'll only ever focus on the positive all the time. Anything that isn't positive spiritual vibes, you've got to do it away after all we are we are kids of the king who has conquered who rules that's not the picture it's not the full picture that the bible paints it doesn't work in the world that we live i don't think though that that is typically our flavor our problem i think we tend to a different problem and it's the problem of what i'll call spiritual stoicism to be spiritually stoic. Do you, do you know what it means to be stoic? It's, it's to take pride in soldiering on without any admission of angst. It, it's, it's to squash anything in there. It's to toughen up. It's to soldier on. And so we read Job's response in chapter 1, verse 20. Wow, admirable. Stoic even. And we might think that to uphold the same integrity before God... I must bury all of my true emotions deep down and not let them out before God. For fear that it might actually betray a lack of faith in him. No, 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 just trust, just be strong, push on. But that's not what we find in the Bible. Job is presented as a righteous sufferer who owns his tears. But still, is it Christian? Because after all, not everything in the Old Testament is to be embraced by the New Testament follower of Jesus. The Gospel does change things. Is it appropriate this side of the cross and resurrection to lament? Yes, it is. The Apostle Paul tells us that there were moments when he despaired of life itself. We dug into this last term. In 2 Corinthians. And then the Lord Jesus, who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Gospels record his lament over Jerusalem and her coming judgment. As he faces the cross, as we had in the reading, his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. The gospel does bring a profound difference for us in our suffering compared to Job. And we'll come to it. But there are things that remain the same, including our humanity. God has made us to be human, which is to be rational, which distinguishes us to be image bearers compared to the rest of the creation. But we're not merely rational beings, we are Emotional beings. God has made us human with emotions. And therefore, the feelings that he has made us to have need to be felt. Uh, dear brother out there, I see him now, has taught me this. Feelings are meant to be felt. Healthy Christian life involves Owning our tears. There's the first thing for us to do, to to own them, to not deny them, to stuff them down, to think there's no place for that in the Christian life. Here's the second thing, and it's significant, is to direct your tears. Direct your tears to God. We see this time and time again in the laments in the psalm. Psalm 22, one of the more familiar ones to us, Jesus takes it upon his own lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? As we look at chapter 3, we might wonder, is Job lamenting to God? Is he directing it to God? It doesn't seem so but remember we've been brought into a dialogue between Job and his friends this is before the friends but it is implied that this lament is to God and in fact it gets explicit a little later on, come to chapter 16 chapter 16 verse 7 the pattern in Job as we'll find is Job speaks then one of his friends responds, Job speaks again in response to that, then a different friend responds, Job speaks and so on and so on and so on for the next 35 chapters. Chapter 16 verse 7, Job is speaking, he says, surely God, you have worn me out, you have devastated my entire household, you have shriveled me up and it has become a witness My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. Wow. Do you know who Stephen Fry is? Uh, Fairly familiar. He's a prominent atheist of our day, British man, and I think... Many of you will be familiar with this because the clip made its way around uh, YouTube and so on. But a few years back, there's a TV interview that he's doing and he's asked the question, when you see God in the afterlife, what will the first thing you say to him be? Now Stephen Fry is an atheist. He doesn't believe there is a God. There will be an afterlife. But, but he, he assumes for a moment that there is. He says this. This is what Stephen Fry would say to him. Bone cancer in children? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault? Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? And on he goes. Now if you've seen that clip, you probably like me, I find it a very distressing thing to watch. But I also find reading Job and how he speaks, how he rants, an uncomfortable thing. So what is the difference between a Stephen Fry rant at God and Job that we're experiencing? Well, here's the big difference. It's covenant relationship. It's covenant Relationship. Stephen Fry stands over and against God, the God that he denies, and pronounces judgment on him. Job cries out to the God that he knows, that he loves, in lament to him. Oh, it's raw. It's honest. It's unedited. But it's done in the context of covenant relationship there's the huge difference and in fact what gets to the heart of what the bible is inviting us to come into relationship with God not box ticking not a religious lifestyle not a tradition or a heritage but relationship with the almighty God of the universe but it's not just any relationships it's one based on covenant rather than convenience on covenant rather than convenience. See, relationships of convenience only last as long as it suits the person that they're in relationship with. Whilst we're getting what we want. I was listening to a podcast recently where... A man, a young, youngish man, well my age, I just like to think I'm still youngish, um, who, a Silicon Valley uh, guy who was part of PayPal, starting PayPal, the huge business that it is. And it was a fascinating interview for all sorts of reasons. But this man went through a very dark season, very, very dark. And he emerges, and uh, emerges to a great place of happiness. And he's explaining a lot of what he has done to get there and the philosophy that he now lives by. And one of the key philosophies that he lives by is the one of subtraction. He lives by the philosophy of subtraction. Subtracting anything that would get in the way of his personal happiness. So that he says this, he speaks of subtracting any relationship that is no longer serving his happiness. There's the liberated way of our society. The philosophy of subtraction. Get rid of any, rela- any relationship that is no longer serving my happiness. And so a relationship with that guy, with that way, which is all around us, is a is, is relationship of convenience. Whilst it suits me, I'm in it. As soon as it stops suiting me, I'm out. And these, of course, are so fragile these relationships, they breed deep anxiety because I know how fragile it is. I've got to walk around on eggshells to keep this, I can't say anything or do anything tough for fear of upsetting you and you leaving and actually I need this relationship for my health so so we can't actually do anything hard but here's the thing, relationships of covenant are founded on much stronger foundations. A relationship that is based on covenant, is committed to your end of the relationship to the death. Marriage is a covenant. For better, for worse, till death do us part. Which of course is why we feel so much the pain as they fail. A covenant in ancient times was literally sealed with blood killing an animal, saying, may I be like the foe of this animal if I don't keep my end of the covenant. Here's the thing with God and his people. The relationship that he has with his people is based on covenant, not his convenience. And the relationship that he has with us as followers of Jesus was bought, was sealed with the blood of his one and only son, And here's the thing about covenant relationship. They can handle the tough stuff. They can handle the hard questions, the honesty, the raw stuff. Job is the word of God to us, giving us permission to cry out those unedited laments of a broken heart. Not fearful that this will somehow upset him and break the relationship, and he'll be off. He's a God of covenant, and so don't deny your feelings before God or about God. Own them and direct them to Him. And here's the thing: as we do that, it is a wonderful act of faith. As we get, God, you are there. You are almighty, you do hear, you do control the world. Let me direct it to you. We acknowledge that he cares for us. Because here's the thing, the, the things that we lament over, that, that they're too big for us to carry on our own, the bitterness, the anger, the betrayal, the confusion. If we think we have to just bottle that up and swallow it, it'll destroy us. But God says, own it and bring it to me. That there is health as we do that. That that There is a covenant relationship in which we can do that. Own your tears. Direct them to God in the context of covenant relationship with him. And I'm actually just going to pause here and want to apply this particularly right now. I'm going to ask Lyndall to come up, who's I've asked to pray for us in a style of lament, to own not all, but a range of much of what grieves us as a community, as members within it, uh, to own it, to direct it to God. And so I invite you to take this time to appropriate these laments as relevant, uh, to add your own to it to a God that we're in covenant relationship with. Thanks, Linda.
1: Oh, Lord, our God, there is so much pain and brokenness and grief in our lives and in our world right now. Please hear our cry to you. Lord, sickness is overwhelming many of us at the moment. We groan under the weight of ongoing and recurring illnesses and we feel tired and worn down. Some of us have long-term terrible physical pain and mental health conditions that leave us lonely and fearful. Lord, the grief and loss of seeing normally healthy and strong bodies and minds deteriorate is devastating. We also cry out in pain to you Lord over our broken relationships, over marriages that are difficult or ending and relationships with family and friends that have been damaged and bring us pain and perhaps guilt and sorrow. Lord we ache for peace and restoration and Lord some of us here are facing the terrible loss and grief that infertility is. To long for the gift of children and to have it withheld brings deep anguish and sorrow. Lord, many of us here today are also facing loneliness. We long to share life in real and significant ways, but are sometimes prevented from doing so. And Lord, this too brings so much pain. And Lord, we lament the awful enemy that death is death that snatches from us little babies, and our mums, and our dads, our children before their time, and many loved ones. Lord, why are these ones taken from us? Our hearts ache as we long for this terrible loss and pain to end, and for our tears to be finally dried up. And Lord, some of us here... Have been facing the heart wrenching reality of seeing our loved ones reject you or walk away from you. Lord, so many tears have been cried, and we are in great pain as we fear eternally for these ones we love so dearly. Lord, there are also those in our world who face terrible persecution for your sake. Many cannot meet or speak freely about you, and some have been imprisoned and beaten and even killed. Lord, this injustice shocks us and grieves our hearts. And Lord, we feel as well the deep grief of our own spiritual brokenness and sin. We love you, and yet we fall over again and again into our selfish desires. We sometimes feel totally hopeless and helpless in this. O oh Lord, our hearts and bodies grow weak with sorrow as we wait and yearn for these times to be over. How long, O oh Lord? How long?
0: How wonderful the Christian faith is that we can own what it is to live in this broken world and we can direct it to the God we know as Father. But here's the third and final thing for us. It's to preach to your tears. Own them, direct them to God, but preach to your tears. There's two mistakes that we can make when it comes to our emotions. I've dealt with the first one of suppressing them, being stoked, But the second one is to bow down to them. To allow them to be our greatest authority. This is the way of our modern society. Whatever you feel is sovereign. And so make sure to be authentic, you listen to it and you obey it. And how dare anyone else tell you not to because what you feel is functionally your God. Here's the thing. We are to own our emotions, to express them to God, but to not bow down to them as God. Our emotions are an infallible guide of what's going on in us. So listen to them. Direct them to God. But they are a fallible guide as far as ultimate reality goes. That's one of the key messages of the book of Job. Our tiny little handle on reality is hopelessly equipped to make complete sense of it. And so, yes, we feel this way, own it, direct it to God, but don't take it as sovereign. We need a word from outside of us which is where the book of Job is going. We're going to work through a bunch of the dialogue in the coming weeks and then we will land where the book lands, which is God shows up and speaks, brings a word from the outside to Job. And here's the thing, whilst Job has been asking why, why, why this, he doesn't get any answers to those questions. Instead, God says, this is who I am, this is what I've done. And it's in that word, from the outside, that Job finds his resolution. And so for us, how much fuller and greater is that outside word that we have? We even know what was going on in Job's life that he didn't know. We've been given a mind to understand that. We've been given a mind to see the sweep of salvation history of what God is doing in it. And so we suffer in the same broken world as Job, with the same human emotions to be owned and to be expressed, to be real with God about them. But we have a much fuller word than Job. And so the ability to preach to our tears. The tomb is empty, the gospel is true. God is there, not aloof, but in love, has come into this broken world, has taken it upon himself in his son Jesus, a man of sorrows, and who has gone to the cross to deal with what lies at the very root of all that we lament, the problem of human sin. God has so loved, and doesn't just know the experience of brokenness, but has dealt with it. And in the death and resurrection of Christ has introduced the beginning of the undoing of all that we lament so that we can own our tears, and we can direct them to God, but we can preach to them and we can have a very real hope even with tears. He knows, he cares, he has done something about it. And we're now going to apply this Again, immediately by taking a mini meal together, what Christians call communion. We're going to apply this hope right now together as we take part in the meal that Jesus gave his followers, an opportunity for us to preach to ourselves the basis of the covenant relationship we have with God. Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Bringing us into relationships strong enough for us to be raw and real with God. The covenant upon which we hang our hope that God is at work in the midst of hardship and one day doing away with it. As we come to this mini meal, know that Jesus gave it to his followers. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, whether you call this church home or are visiting, you are welcome and invited to take this meal. If you are not a follower of Jesus, we love that you are here. Invite you to reflect on what it is we have heard Or better still, to come into relationship with a God who has sent his son for you. Put your trust in him and come and take this meal with his people. Bread and juice down the front and in the aisles, invite you to come and grab some, but hold on to it. Come back to your seat. The band is going to play a song for us that we particularly hope you can use to reflect, uh, to preach to yourself possibly join in if you would like from your seat. So hold on to it and then I'll lead us in a time of taking that together.